Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 33 in our series on world history. In the 32nd podcast, we looked at the political analysis of the European countries between the years 1450 to 1648. I emphasized that international relations was dominated by two themes, religious issues, which we talked about in that entire podcast, and then territorial expansion that we're going to look at in this podcast. So when we were discussing religious issues, we're talking about the continued friction between Protestantism and Catholicism. We looked at the one absolute disaster of a military plan led by Philip II of Spain, what became known as the Spanish Armada in 1588. And then we also looked at and wrapped up with the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648. And again, as I do with most wars, I focus specifically on the outcome to see what dominoes fall as a result of that and how the human race either benefits or suffers from the treaties that resolve these conflicts. In this case, the Treaty of Westphalia, as we talked about, was a, a treaty that had so much influence, yet settled so little. I also mentioned in that podcast that it was the bloodiest conflict in world history until the First World War. To put that into perspective, at the beginning of the Thirty Years' War in 1618, the population was about 20 million in Western and Eastern Europe. By the end of that war, it had killed six to eight million people, depending upon how you tabulate the casualties and deaths. That said, production dropped throughout those 30 years to 15 to 25% below what was the norm prior to the war starting. So it just puts into perspective, again, just how bloody this conflict was. So between the Armada and the Thirty Years' War, one can understand how some Europeans would look for any and every opportunity to get out of Dodge, to leave Europe, to see if they have a better chance at survival and live their lives the way they want to, hopefully peacefully, somewhere else. And that's what leads us in this 33rd podcast to look at and begin to discuss the age of exploration. When we're looking at the age of exploration, just a quick reminder here going back to these first few podcasts in world history. From the first podcast all the way until the 32nd one, the map of Europe didn't change. Their understanding of the world in terms of geography didn't change much. It was a massive European continent attached through the Ural Mountains to the Asian continent. The Middle East, which isn't known as the Middle East at that point, it's Southeastern Europe, and then you also had the northern half of the continent of Africa. How far down the continent of Africa I actually went to, few, if any, people knew. Was there anything beyond that Atlantic Ocean 
going directly west. Once again, to the average Europeans at this time, nobody knew. So when we talk about the age of exploration, I would be willing to bet that if you pause the podcast here, you'd be able to identify the major European powers that would eventually colonize new lands once they were discovered. If not, certainly you can recall these lessons from high school or grammar school history and social studies classes. We know that the colonizing European powers will be that of Spain, Portugal, France, the Netherlands, and England. A common denominator, of course, with all of those countries is that they have long coastal territories. In other words, these are the countries that can't get away with just the luxury of a massive land army with paying little, if any, attention to having any kind of a navy because they have to be able to protect their country not only on land with the army, but also for any potential naval invasion, hence the navy. Landlocked countries, yes, can have some disadvantages to being landlocked, but few landlocked countries don't have access to at least a major river systems or some minor tributaries. So they'll have some form of a Coast Guard type protection, but they don't have to invest the massive resources into a huge Navy. Coastal countries don't have that luxury. They have to maintain the Army as well as the Navy. So it's no surprise then again, those are gonna be the countries that are gonna be colonizing the New World because they had experience sailing on the high seas. So that in terms of what countries explored, now let's look at the motivations. As we know, Columbus certainly was not the first European to set foot on what will eventually be labeled the North and South American continents. We know that European civilization had made contact centuries before. But now that we're into the late 1400s, in terms of when the age of exploration begins, what would have motivated somebody like to Columbus to scratch his head, look directly west and ask the question, is there land out there? Is there more land out there than we can see here? Well, first off, remember that that wasn't Columbus's goal. Columbus wasn't asking the question, is there more land out there? He wanted to know, if I sailed directly west, would I be able to get to Asia faster then sailing through the entire Mediterranean Sea from the coast of Spain, through the river systems, partly into the Asian territory, eventually getting to the Indian Ocean, and then working his way from there. That's the way the trade routes were established. Nobody had the luxury of being able to sail directly. There would be some amount of transferring the goods onto land to bringing that to the next body of water to sail once again. That increased insurance costs that increased the cost of goods sold. That was the motivation for Columbus to ask, can I get to Asia directly on water by going directly west? So again, curiosity clearly is going to be one of these criteria or motivating factors. The second, as we just talked about, was those trade routes. And the third would be the religious recruitment and or freedom. Needless to say, just listening to that last podcast, yes, people are going to want to get out of there. Admittedly, we don't have the Spanish Armada as of yet, chronologically speaking, because we're only in the 1490s. We also don't have the uh, 30 Years War happening yet, but religious tension was still clearly being felt in the late 1400s between the Orthodox Church, 
Islam, and Roman Catholicism. So a third factor, religious recruitment and or freedom, absolutely important. And then finally was a faster access to foreign markets might allow them to engage in the trade of various goods that might not be available through the longer, more tedious trade routes. And a shorter trade route could also lead to increased profit margins. So those are the four motivations. Again, we're looking at curiosity, the new trade routes, religious recruitment and freedom, and then finally revenues, increased revenues and access to a wider variety of goods and services. So that's what leads us to eventually this European known as Christopher Columbus. One of the big myths is that Columbus was Spanish. He wasn't. And when I throw this question out to my classes, the occasionally I'll, I'll ask, what nationality was he? Again, the first off is that he was Spanish. Some say he was Portuguese or French. Occasionally I'll have a student that'll say, no, I thought he was Italian. Technically, all of those answers are wrong. Clearly, he was not French, Spanish, or Portuguese. Loosely, you could say he was Italian. But the fact of the matter is Italy, as we know it, doesn't exist at this time. Italy, like Germany, those countries are not going to be on the world map for some time to come. Rather, Germany is a collection of tiny little principalities, hundreds of them, and Italy is also a collection of individual principalities. That's the reason why we don't see Italy and Germany as any of the colonizers of the new worlds. They were, they by definition didn't exist yet. Had Italy existed, the Italy we know today, Columbus could have gone to his own hierarchy, to his own monarch and asked for the ability to be funded on this route to find a faster trade route to Asia. The fact of the matter is, he came from Genoa. Columbus technically was Genoese, a principality that still, still exists in, in the northern part of modern-day Italy, to the point that individuals, when they're traveling through Italy, if you refer to Columbus as Italian, you won't get any objection. To go to Genoa, though, Columbus's home city-state, technically you can still go to his home property and ask where is Christopher Columbus the Italian, you're going to get pushback. He was Genoese first, then he's Italian. So just to put again, to upright that myth and dispel the myth about what the nationality of Columbus. Columbus, again, he's going to be considered Spanish simply because of how tied he's going to be with the monarchs of Spain in order to get the funding to be able to make it to the new world. So Columbus First off, and also dispel the myth, doesn't run to Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain right away. His first stop is Portugal. But the king and queen of Portugal have no interest in figuring out if there's a faster trade route to Asia by going directly west. The age-old academic acceptance is that the world, number one, is flat. Number two, there's an edge to it just beyond the horizon that the eyes can see. And three, there's massive sea monsters out there. So no, Columbus, we're not going to fund you with even so much as a rowboat to be able to figure out if you can get to Asia by going directly west. With his tail between his legs, Columbus leaves Portugal and arrives with an audience, as an audience, for the king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella. He pitches the same proposal of which they also say, yeah, 
Great idea. Check, please. We're not interested. Columbus then had an inkling, a little bit of an idea, where he asked an aide of the court a question, of which the aide leaned back and said, one moment, and goes and whispers into the ear of King Ferdinand, of which Ferdinand calls Columbus back and says, okay, try this on me one more time. What do you want to do? Columbus makes the pitch, and Ferdinand and Isabella reluctantly say, yes, we'll fund it. The question that Columbus asks, though, is, okay, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain are saying no. So he asked the aide, what's the fastest way through the Pyrenees Mountains north to Paris? Ferdinand and Isabella, it was later found out, thought, wait a minute. We say no, and Columbus goes to the Parisians. The French might be stupid enough to go ahead and fund this clown. But what by chance, slim chance, somehow, this guy's right. I mean, he's willing to put his true life on the line. Maybe he knows something we don't know, has confidence in something we don't know. Regardless, Columbus, if you're willing to put your neck on the line to go directly west to see if you can get to Asia, we'd rather have a Spanish flag flying from the mast of that ship rather than a French flag. So reluctantly, they give Columbus their approval. Please know, again to dispel the myth, they did not give Columbus a massive amount of funding and three beautiful brand new ships. Not only did they give him very little funding, they only gave him one ship, the Santa Maria. The Pinta and the Nina were privately owned by wealthy families who more or less wanted to ride the coattails of Columbus's one ship to see if there would be a faster trip, a faster route to Asia. The equivalent today would be somebody approaching the White House and asking the president if they would fund, if he would fund them to be able to take a spaceship to Mars far faster than anything humans have created thus far in terms of technology. The president reluctantly says, yes, I'll go ahead and fund it. But then the likes of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett say, oh, wait a minute, we can make one of those things too. And if they can get to Mars faster, great. We would like to be able to have our name attached to that journey as well. So that's the reason and how Columbus ends up with the Pinta and the Nina. So the Santa Maria, to say that that was not exactly a brand new glamorous ship is somewhat of an understatement. In fact, the ship was dry docked because of the extensive disrepair that it was in. But Columbus was not to be deterred. He had the ambition and the motivation. And before long, that Santa Maria was seaworthy and in the harbor of Palos, Spain, ready to take off to answer his question to see if there was a faster trade route. From there, please note, the ultimate reason why Columbus and convinced Ferdinand and Isabella to fund him was partly because of the information that Columbus shared with the king and queen in terms of technological advances. First off was the idea of these newly designed sails. The traditional ship had either one or two types of sails, which would be rectangular or square. Now, these are massive canvas sails that obviously can easily rip and can be difficult to steer. 
With the newly designed idea coming from Asia of taking the triangular cell, putting it on the back or the front mast, which leads them to the three-masted ships now versus the traditional two, Columbus would have a better handle on being able to steer the ship regardless of which way the wind was blowing and which way the water current was trying to take the ship. I had an opportunity firsthand to witness the power of a triangular sail when I sailed down the Nile River in a felucca, leaving the shores of Cairo and sailing directly south. The wind was so strong along with the water current, with no resistance from the water current, that the felucca, which was a, basically a large sailboat, was sailing down the river with the sail not even hoisted because the wind was strong enough to push us down. At one point, the captain of the boat said, we need to, everybody needs to have a seat and we're going to turn this vessel around to head back north. I'm thinking, head back north? The wind is still blowing significantly from the north. And I'm not seeing a massive oven root or mercury engine on the back of this bad boy. How does he plan on taking this ship, our boat, directly north against the wind? And once again, I thought back to Columbus's day, the moment I saw the captain raise the sail and then unfurl it. And sure enough, it wasn't a square or rectangular flag. It was a triangular flag. And he was able to tack our way back up to the harbor in which we left, directly against the wind. You see, if there's any experienced sailors listening to this podcast, you know that the objective of a sail is not to catch the wind. If a sail were to catch the wind, if you're lucky, the sail will only be torn in shreds. If you're unlucky, if the, and the sail catches the wind, you're either going to snap the mast or the mast will hold and it's going to capsize the ship or the boat. Needless to say, none of those are great options. Rather, what a sail does and what an experienced sailor does is what they call bending the wind. In other words, you take the you put the sail at a particular angle against the wind and you allow the wind to hit the sail in such a way that a low pressure forms behind the sail and can actually pull it in the direction in which the wind is blowing, or I should say slightly indirectly. So when we were sailing south with the wind, we went on an exact straight line. When we turned back, which was a longer part of the trip, of course, we didn't sail in a direct line. Rather, if you look at whether if going directly north was 12 o'clock, we would actually be going to 10 o'clock and then to 2 o'clock and then back to 10 o'clock. And we would work our way back up to Cairo by, again, tacking the sail and bringing us to the original place, the destination where we left. So this is, again, all this technology, all this new information with sailing, this is not, as I say, old hat to any European. These ideas, once again, are coming out of Asia. Along that idea, too, is the compass. With the compass, yet another European, yet another Asian idea, the compass allowed Columbus to not have to rely on where the sun was, where the moon, or any celestial bodies for that matter. As long as Columbus was sailing west, and that compass indicated that, he practically could ignore any celestial bodies. The compass allowed the human race to become independent Upon, depending upon the stars 
and celestial bodies to determine where we're at and what direction we're going. As we know, listeners, a compass doesn't read four major directions or any of the many directions in between. A compass, as we know, only reads north. By north, a compass, which of course is a metal needle that is applied to or uh, interfaced with lodestone, lodestone, which is has naturally magnetic. If the needle is allowed to float over the lodestone through a small air pocket or a small application of water, the needle will constantly point in one direction. And on the surface of the earth right now, that's north. But it is what we call magnetic north, not true north. Again, the compass is new. There is no one-year guarantee or 10-year guarantees. There's no warranty. So Columbus is going to be finding out the hard way that there is a difference between true north and magnetic north. So in other words, despite what our cars tell us that we're traveling west and then southwest and then south when we're turning a corner or whatever direction we're going, a compass to this day still only reads one direction. Rather, north then would be zero degrees. 90 degrees of north, we would be traveling east. 180 degrees, we're traveling south. 270 degrees, we're traveling directly west all the way up until 359 degrees, 360 slash zero, we're going back north. Columbus, again, is able to give Ferdinand and Isabella a sense of confidence that he's going to be able to bring this ship back, that even if the celestial bodies are no longer visible as he sails west, the compass will allow him to determine the right direction, the newly Designed sails will allow him to turn the ship around regardless of wind current and water current. So all was well, so he thought, until Ferdinand asked the question, what are you going to do for protection? And that's when he pointed to get another relatively new application of an Asian idea, and that, of course, being gunpowder. Having some small cannons and armaments and able to protect themselves. From what? Other human beings? No. It's the idea of the sea monsters that might be out there. So the application of gunpowder is going to give Columbus and his men the confidence that should they get attacked out on the open waters, they have the means to protect themselves with this fine, relatively pungent substance called gunpowder. Gunpowder, what is that exactly? It's an idea, it's a combination of three elements, charcoal, sulfur, and potassium nitrate, or commonly known as saltpeter. The ideal combination for military purposes is 15% charcoal, 10% sulfur, and 75% saltpeter. If you were to modify the percentages of that mixture, you will get different results. For example, a mixture of instead of 75% saltpeter, bring that down to 60%. What you'll have is a bright flash, but a relatively weak explosion. 
Chances are people listening to this podcast are far more familiar with that weaker combination than they hopefully will ever be of the actual ideal combination. Why? Because that 60%, that 15% reduction that gives that bright flash but weak explosion is what we're looking at anytime we see a fireworks display, which is what it's perfect for. But remember too, that an explosion is going to take place once that hammer hits in that gunpowder explodes, pushing that projectile in the barrel out through the front end, of course. But remember that whatever device is used to handle that explosion needs to be stronger than the explosion itself. Otherwise, the weapon will blow up in one's hand. Now, mind you, as I say, this is not a, a European invention. Once again, because of the way that Roman Catholicism was thwarting ingenuity, thinking, and learning for the last roughly 1,000 years, Asia was not under that Roman Catholic umbrella. Therefore, the, that's the reason why those civilizations were able to design this. So this is, an, in fact, for gunpowder itself, we have evidence of, from a Chinese manuscript that it was invented well over 400 years before Columbus set sail. To read more about the application and the breakdown of gunpowder, I recommend Tom Akaitis' book, a professor at DePaul University, and his book, Conventional and Unconventional War. That's specifically what I just discussed. You would find on pages 17 and 18. So with Columbus now having all of this hardware in his hands, the application of new technology, Ferdinand and Isabella ultimately gave him a yes. So from there, with these two private families bringing in the Pinta and the Nina, Columbus was now confident that he could set sail directly west. So he would leave Palos, Spain on August 3rd, 1492, with 89 other men total on all three ships. So 90 men total with Columbus. Please know that what I share going forward on this and the next podcast about Columbus's journeys, know that we are only getting this on the first journey, that we are only getting this from Columbus and the log that he kept. Columbus was the only one to our knowledge that was literate. The other 89 men were either illiterate, could not read or write, or if they did, never left any written record as to what transpired. So please know that whether you're reading a survey world history book, whether you're listening to my interpretation from the, in this podcast or in one of my classes or any professor worldwide, what we know about Columbus's first journey truly is only from Columbus. So in terms of what happened on the high seas from a written record. So Columbus will set sail on August 3rd, 1492. And to everybody's surprise, he doesn't direct the ships to go directly west. Rather, he directs them to go south towards Africa. Nobody is, has any idea why Columbus, right out of the harbor, is not going in the direction that he thinks he can get to Asia. Why would he go south? The reason being is that Columbus had a hunch that from his years as an experienced sailor, 
that there was a pattern that he was picking up that if he set sail directly from Spain west, which then would have brought him to the middle of the United States, he was afraid that if he set sail directly west from any of Spanish harbors, he would never get to Asia, much less anywhere else. Rather, he sailed directly south to confirm a suspicion that turned out to be right that would ultimately lead him west. What was Columbus suspicious of? What did he want to test? It would turn out to be one of the most powerful forces in the world, and you can't even see it. More about that when we begin the next podcast in our series on world history. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions you might have, book recommendations, or what have you. If you like what we discussed, also please leave me a review on your whatever platform that you're listening on or on any social media account. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.